I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Professor Todd McGowan, who teaches theory and film at the University of Vermont. His newest book, Universality and Identity Politics, will be out this July from Columbia University Press. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.com. Net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So, how's your? How are things going? Are they? Are you? Are you staying in mostly? Yeah, I've been inside for six weeks. What is this? Yeah. This is week seven now. I think. Right. Right. We. I have two. That's right. Yeah, it's not mandated here. But I'm doing it anyway, and pretty much everyone I know is doing it anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know why you would want to go outside. <laughs> I'll just stay. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> How are you? I'm okay. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to adjust to the life inside to something, but it's okay. I mean, it's better than dying which I know people that have, it's kind of a, it's a very scary, sad time. Yeah, for sure. I've actually known five people who have passed away now. Some definitely COVID and some, they weren't tested, but probably were COVID. Right, right. Yeah. It's funny because I was sick at the beginning of the time and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, because I couldn't get a test what it was, but it was pretty, it was very bad. But I have a, I have lung problems. So I think if I got it, it would be, very dangerous and severe for me. So I don't think that I had it. But Yeah, I but you, I think a lot of people have had it and didn't realize that that's what it was. Right. They've done these little tests of different areas, and they're like 100 times or 50 times the number of people that think they're infected have been infected, right? It's um, just it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, bet. It's really, like a, it's really like – it's funny. I don't know about there, but here the, the it's such a political divide. That's, you know, about this, just regarding the seriousness of it, you would think that an illness would just be, it would just be what it is. But it's funny how it just has completely mobilized left and right politically in different ways. And I guess, don't you think that there's a way in which natural disasters are inherently favorable to the left and, and human made wars are inherently favorable to the right. And so I think I almost kind of feel like Trump and the right, they sort of sense that, oh, a natural disaster like a, 
a plague is is bad for us because it it gives people a sense of the collective and their whole idea is let's give they only want a collective that's clearly nationalized or, or ethnic and I think that the the point of, the, of a plague or any kind of natural disaster is that it makes a collective that's regardless of border become apparent regardless of borders become apparent that's a really good point yeah i know here it's not politicized like that like here the the politicians who usually don't agree are like we're all on the same side with this you know so it creates a collect like there's a collective sensibility yeah 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 that's interesting i mean I, I find it very – I don't know. Have you read like Giorgio Agamben and these these leftist critiques of the decision to to mandate that people stay inside? No. So Agamben, because he thinks it's in and, – and a lot of other thinkers of biopower, biopolitics, their idea is that by forcing people to – that, that we're giving in to the power of the state. That's one thing. So it's the authority of the state, which they are against in every form. And the, the second thing is that it's um, that it's that, it, that it's it's we're, that life itself is not worth. How would they say it? That life itself has no inherent worth. And so by valuing life over what Agamben would call our form of life, we're betraying the only thing that makes our life worth living. So he even attacked the pope for holding mass within a you know, when he held mass and nobody came. So Agamben's point, he, he compared Pope Francis to St. Francis, and he said, St. Francis went out among the lepers. Pope Francis protects himself from those who are diseased. So I thought it was, it's, it's, I found that risable. I think that's a horrible position. Uh, you know, I think what's interesting is that the difference is, of course, that Francis, even if he died by going, like he didn't kill other people, whereas if Pope Francis held a mass and everybody came, it wouldn't just kill himself. It could kill, you know, millions of people. So I find that a really – it's interesting that that's the end point of this logic of biopower and, and fear of biopower. That's where what it ends up leading to, that any gesture on the part of the state and any attempt to protect us via the state is, is anathema. Whereas I kind of feel like – this is a time for state power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's when this is the time when we're what government is supposed to be is used for. You know, like <laughs> right. here it's interesting, but there you don't get this op so here there's an opposition, the opposition between right and left, but also between capital and state power. So there's these champions of the capitalist economy. There's even this lunatic lieutenant governor in Texas, I don't know if you've heard of him, named Dan Patrick, who who says he said, there are things more important than life. And by that, he meant our capitalist Money. economy. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So it's interesting that Agamben and, and this crazy Republican lieutenant governor kind of co – I mean, they don't – like Agamben's not in favor of money necessarily, but th their position ends up being the same. No, I've been thinking about that too because a lot of kind of really left-wing people that I usually really like I, at this point have like kind of – merged with the really really right like where they're both I like know. against the thing for different reasons but having the same kind of outcome and i've actually had to like tell people that i like that like those people as well like this is a time where you cannot listen or this like 
push to say like, oh, it's getting all blown out of proportion. And this is like more of a conspiracy than it needs to be. And it's like, actually, it's being really underreported, clearly. So right. <laughs> let's not say that, please. <laughs> such a great point by you. I think that's exactly right. I think it's not overdone. It's underdone. You know, across the planet, I think it's being undersold. Exactly. And, and I think, it, you know, I usually, I, I totally agree with you. I usually don't like that idea that left and right somehow meet. But this this event is showing that to be actually really true. It's that we're actually seeing it happen live right before our eyes. You know, this, like I have two also leftist friends who sound like these, my mom has a group of lunatic conservative friends that from when she lived in Ohio and, and they're all like, they all think, I know it's, I'm from Ohio, so I, I know it's a, uh, uh, but they've actually, it's funny, Ohio has a Republican governor who's one of the few that's done a really good job. He's like shut everything down. And so, so I'm a, for the first time, I don't feel totally ashamed about being from Ohio, but, um, but, but my, uh, her friend, what I'm saying is her friends are all, they're all like, they're just denying it. They're like, they're, not only do they think it's overdone, they think it's not, it's just a complete hoax. And she finally said, I can't even talk to you. Like, I can't. I just can't. If you don't believe in this, we can't even have a conversation. Yeah, no, this is science. That's the thing. Like you're saying, like, how how are they arguing this? But as people pointed out as well, like uh, the same people that are denying this are the climate change deniers. Like, clearly, like all of this is really happening and it's science and we need to like deal with it uh, as if it's real because it is. Yeah, it's, I think it's a great point that the, the the coincidence of the people denying this and the people denying climate change and the way in which I've heard people say this, and I think this is right, that this is a kind of preliminary run for the disaster of climate change as it's going to come. And I think that's probably I think that's probably true. Yeah, exactly. I think this is part of it. This is one of the things they said would happen. There would be more diseases as the earth gets warmer and it's it's all happening. Right. And as also as we encroach on every other part of the planet. Right. I think that's part of what they think probably originated the disease is that it was we were going into areas that were previously not gone into, you know, and then that then all of a sudden we're in contact with animals that, you know, we wouldn't otherwise be in contact with. Right. We need to leave some parts of the earth natural. Yeah, just a few. like just a little, a little bit. bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I totally agree with that. It's kind I mean, of horrifying that we've covered as much as we have, actually. I know. It's like we've only left the desert alone, you know? Um, speaking of being ashamed of where you're from, <laughs> I, I had to go to Episcopalian school when I was young. And we were actually taught that, like, the Earth was, like, 5,000 or 6,000 years old, like, in school. Wow. What wow. do you think about this? Like, why are people allowed to teach children that? Because I actually believe that, and I had to learn it when I got older, like, like when I was a teenager. But until I was a teenager, I thought that. That's not what okay. Was the, Vanessa, what was the thesis about about carbon dating and stuff that was— They just was, didn't was there... that. Oh, okay. So they just avoided it. <laughs> they just left it out. Okay. Just like they left did... out world history and only taught us like 200 years of American history over and over and over and over, which they left a lot of that out also. Right. <laughs> like slavery, civil rights movement, right? Um, interesting. I, th- I mean, I, I actually, 
what, what do you think about, I'm, I'm against private schooling. I have to say I'm against homeschooling. I feel like that's a function. We just talked about the things that the state can do. It seems like to me, schooling is something the state can do and should do. And I, I've always found everybody that I know, I shouldn't say this. I know one person that was homeschooled and they're really leftist and smart and it was great. But basically all the people that I know that were homeschooled or private schooled, they have to overcome this initial like skewing of their entire perspective. I mean, I don't want to apotheosize public schooling, but I do think there's really something to be said for public schooling and not letting people into, you know, this kind of like wild, you know, it's just a kind of paranoid position where you're not even ready to meet the world when you have this idea that the world is 4,000 years old or something, you know? And I think it's interesting that they didn't even broach the idea of the, the, of fossils, because I like this. Do you know this thesis that God actually put the fossils there to trick to us? Test into people. Yeah, yeah, nobody told yeah. us that, actually. Oh, you got that. Okay. Yeah, 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 we did. I had forgot. I've blocked a lot of it out. I grew up in a really fundamentalist home, and so that was a I mean, I don't think we got this stuff about the Earth's age. I don't I think that wasn't their concern, although we did. I think they would go – they get the age from going through the different generations in the Bible, right? Like that's how they calculate it. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. 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 It's like yeah. 6,000 years. Right. And I didn't believe that until I was a teenager. And then when I went from private to public school all of a sudden, it was like, what is going on? It was a shock. <laughs> was it just <laughs> a whole the- lot of world that I didn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> Was it just in science that there was a shock or were there other areas where it was also? Well, we also, I mean, we had to go to church every day. So like we woke up, went to school, all met in the center courtyard, praised the flag, right? Pledged the flag, whatever. And then went to church every day before we went to classes. And then during classes, during our school day, like twice a week, we also had Bible study on top of church. And we all like worked in the church. Like I was like a choir girl and did all the altar things and like helped the priest put his robes on and read the Bible in front of the school. It's like, it was a real inundation. Wow. Do you feel, do you still have a really good biblical knowledge? I would say so. Yeah. See, that's a benefit then, right? I guess. Yeah. No, I think it's a benefit. I mean, that's I'm one... actually in my writing. I actually am like adamant that I will not write anything about it. Like, I just don't want it in my work. Oh, so you won't use it as, a, like, a reference for some example or anything? No, I want it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I felt <enough>. that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I felt that way for a long time, and now I've kind of sh- I've shifted back in some way. Like, I, I, I'm just less hostile. I used to feel pretty hostile, and now yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of adjusted. I think but, it's coming up. I think I was more hostile, and then I kind of got over it, and then... Uh, I think it's because I've moved and I see like how just growing up in America in general is like such an inundation into all this propaganda, American being number one and all of human civilization has led up to this point where this country was formed. Maybe that was because I was in this Christian school, too. I don't know. But that's what they taught us as well. I think we all I think everybody I think that you even get that in a public school. Yeah, but it's, I find it fascinating the way religion and nationalism come together so often in America, right? Like that's, it's almost like the private schools are more nationalistic than the public schools, which is kind of crazy. 
Yeah, I wonder too, because I've been thinking also a lot about this, probably because I've left, um, is because that like in Sweden they have like such a cultural history with like all of their old myths and their old religion and like everybody just knows it and it's just like part of the culture and I feel like the people that were native to America you know their mythology and their history and religion was not integrated you know they were just like massacred and put off to the side on these reservations so there's no like there feels like there's no grounding to the culture as far like in history or I don't know. So maybe that's why people are so like nationalistic and like holding on so tight to to things that aren't that historical or deep. I think that's right. I think it's right. And I think that the only ground for culture is Hollywood. Right? Yeah. And that, doesn't, that doesn't seem like I think to I mean, clearly to religious people, that doesn't seem like a ground at all. But I think that's right, that there's no this lack of a past, like a, a rootedness. I think that. I think it creates a kind of inferiority complex among Americans, and then they they overcome, try to overcome it with this rabid patriotism. Exactly, and, and superhero. Yeah. Maybe the superhero movies have like created a yeah. mythology with the comic books and everything. That's like the mythology that we have is like through this like kind of modern myth making. Yeah, don't you think it's interesting though how those are. I don't know about the movies, but at least the the comic books themselves are so male driven, right? Like, I don't think that's a shared space. In fact, I've never met a single, I've had tons of students that come in or just like want to write their thesis on comic books, but never one, never one woman has wanted to. So it's an interesting discrepancy, I think. About the films, I don't know, maybe it's more mixed, but, but I think, I mean, and also because some of these superheroes have been focused on women, very uh, recently. Right, just recently, right. But but I don't know. But so so that can't I mean it, it could maybe form a collective mythology, but then it I think it's not fully collective. You know, it's like it's so Oh definitely not. Yeah, yeah. But but it's also such a it's such an infantile kind of mythology, I think. I don't know. I feel like the um I mean they're okay. I, st- I go to see them all, but these superhero things, I find a little, uh, you know, I think they're a little problematic as certain, just because of what they're, I mean, I feel like they're our contemporary version of the Western, you know, like they're the Western hero who's not subjected to the, who's, who's a, who's a figure of exception, right. Who's not subject to the law and, and writes the things that the law can't write. Uh, so I feel like that just our reliance on that figure is still like a reliance on a John Wayne like figure, a figure of non-castration. I mean, clearest in the case of Superman, right? Like he's a his, his he's totally non-castration because he can't even be hurt except for this crazy stuff kryptonite. Now that this is totally true and I've been thinking about this as well about like the western mythology and how ingrained that is in America and how like you can see it everywhere like trying to clearly we're all you know in quarantine right now and so people are watching a lot of Netflix like trying to find something to watch it's like everything's like the good guy and the bad guy and the and the good guy that's kind of an outlaw but he's still you know he's still the good guy and everything's like you know still like cops and robbers or like westerns or like the DEA versus the cartel it's like it's like over and over and over again it's like do you guys have another story <laughs> well i wonder if if it you know because the the plague breaks down the us versus them possibility because it creates 
I, I would claim this kind of collective. I wonder if like people are flocking to and Hollywood is producing even more of these uh, us versus them kind of scenarios. It seems like that's what that fits in the era as a like it's it gives you respite from the collective. I think that there's something traumatic about the collective, right? Like there's something because it doesn't give you the security of the enemy. And I feel like that enemy, the notion of the friend and that friend enemy distinction that Carl Schmidt talks about, I feel like that's the that's a, such an ideological distinction. And it, but it's yet it's one I think people rely on psychically as a way to kind of orient themselves. Yeah, but Hollywood is not making anything right now. It's all shut down. That's true. So it's not being made in response to this. That's right. That's right. So it's it's that people are drawn to it. Because Hollywood, you're right. They made it. They they made it a while ago, and they're not doing anything now. And all their programming decisions were already made. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that. Um, that the that this idea of the Western and that Western hero. I feel like that. To me, that's that's a supplement of the friend enemy us them distinction. And yet it's, it's crucial to it. So we have to believe in that one figure that, that can say he's, 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 I think he's this figure of salvation, right? Like he, and, and he can't be just like you said, like that, like if it's a DEA, DEA agent, it's one that doesn't necessarily play by all the rules, you know, like, like usually he go, does what has to be done in order to solve the problem. Right. Like so it's, it's this, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Are you watching Westworld? Uh, I am not. No, we're actually watching The Good Place right now for some reason. My, it's fine. I mean, my my my. I have two twin boys. They're sixteen, and and we we just got through this great show, Veronica Mars, and so the star of it, Kristen Bell, is mm-hmm. also in Good Place. So we shifted to that. But I've been my one son has actually watched all of Westworld, and he loves it. So I, I think I should probably. It's pretty probably, good, I must yeah, say. I probably it's probably do. the best thing going right now. Did you watch the Freud show? Uh, no, because people warned me off of it. They said it was really bad. It's campy. Yeah. Yeah, but but I thought it whole, was fun. You didn't think they, they it was a parody of him, like the cocaine and stuff? or? Oh, maybe a little bit. I, had, I talked to this woman, Mary Wilde, about it, who does, like, talks about film and and Freud at the Freud Museum and she described it as fam fiction and oh, I thought really? that was nice because it's like it's a little I mean it's over the top but also like they're making it for Netflix so it's not going to be like high art Freudian theory you know what I mean so they, they yeah I mean yeah okay I'll have to watch it <laughs> I was ambivalent about it in parts i'm like oh freud wouldn't do that you know <laughs> but, but at the end of the day i feel like if it gets like the general public like the netflix level public to like think about freud for a, a few hours that makes me happy you know yeah, no, me, me too but I, I i guess i had the wrong impression like i people told me that it was meant as a parody to turn people off of freud but that's wrong no, because I actually talked to the people who made it and uh, and read interviews with them, and they, they love Freud, so oh, they didn't okay. mean to turn people off from Freud. But I mean, there is like a blood orgy in it, so it's like <laughs> <laughs> is he it's, it goes there. <laughs> he's, he's not in, in it though. He's not in it. I was gonna say. 
no, he no, was no. very. He's in he love with the his, he's drawn to a hysteric who's a psychic who nice. gets possessed by a demon. <laughs> so that's the so it really is like it's like a it's, supernatural kind of yeah exactly it's a cult Freud murder mystery okay it's an occult okay. Freud murder mystery yeah I'm definitely watching it now though so. I mean you just have to see it okay it's like so it's kind of like he's Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something yeah exactly it's like he he gets drawn into it you know he's he's treating his hysterics and then once this woman's a psychic and he's hypnotizing everyone and he kind of falls in love with them and you know she's possessed by demons so he has to like follow the thread you know that's pretty cool is he married yet <laughs> no it's pre-married oh, okay. Freud okay yeah it's okay. worth watching okay definitely. <laughs> Danny Novus would disagree. I I talked to Danny Novus like when I had just seen the first episode or just started watching it, and he hadn't watched it yet. And then he tried to watch it, and he was like, "But Essa." Oh, he couldn't. And I was watch like, it? "Skip to S episode four. and so he did. I don't know. I'll talk to him again and see what happens. Okay. Okay. It's really camp. Okay. He should have been like the script consultant. Or something. Yeah, Danny. I know. That's what I said. Yeah. I told them I can consult for them anytime. Yeah. And we also said maybe they should make a Lacan one, but they actually told me today that they're uh, making one of Deleuze and Guattari. <laughs> 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 so they're, they're making fan fiction about. And the other thing he said that was really interesting um, was that he said that they wrote it in the time where, like, in Freud's biography, there was, uh, like, a, a period where he, like, burned all of his papers and didn't want anyone to know anything about what was going on in his life at that time. And he wrote that to Martha. Um, the, the, the biographers were going to have to just, like, make up what their hero had done during that period. So they were like, well, this is what we just thought of, that maybe this is what he did. And that made me love like it even more, like... So, so it's like they take the gap in the life and then they they fill it in, right? Yeah, with yeah. with some surreal, fantastic stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and they that were like, could like, have happened. Why not? <laughs> yeah, that's. I think it sounds pretty good, actually. And it, yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why I got steered wrong on that. That's well. I think if you if you like to take yourself seriously, you're not gonna like it. You know, it's not, not it's, it's not serious. Yeah, that's not me. I but, mean, I, I, I so I don't understand someone someone really like I think that I think they got really upset by the cocaine thing and that because it was a little you know, bored. A lot of our stu- like the students that hate Freud, they bring up cocaine. That's like their big that's their big thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the student that told me not to watch it was was kind of triggered by the cocaine or something. But lots of people did cocaine back then. It wasn't like an illegal, illicit substance like it is now. Right. It also wasn't illegal, even. Exactly. Right. Right. So, he wrote a lot of papers. (laughs) 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 Oh, well. Danny also told me that there was a book called and movie called The 7% Solution that did something similar where they had Sherlock Holmes and Freud who both took the 7% solution of cocaine and they did murder mysteries together. Have you seen this? Right. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. But yeah, that's good. I'm going to have to check that out now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else I, film related you want to talk about? 
<laughs> I don't know. I can't. I never saw even the Freud movie that John Huston did. So I can't. I'm not, I'm not good about talking about Freud movies. <laughs> what about other movies? Uh, other movies, sure. I just. Um, oh, did you see this new Invisible Man? No. That was just. That was the last thing I saw at the theater before the theaters all closed, which for me is the saddest thing. Like I, I miss so much going to the movies, and I wonder if. We'll, I mean, I think it's going to be a long time before we're able to go to the movies again, because that seems like one of the more dangerous activities. Yeah, uh, it's enclosed and sitting right yeah, next to each other. Yeah, you're eating the popcorn and it's like, you're, you're what you know, you touch the thing and it's like, yeah, so I think that's a problem. Uh, but no, Invisible Man's pretty good. It's, it's uh, you know, the, do you ever see the old one with Claude Rains as the mm-hmm. Invisible Man? Yeah, it's a great movie. It's one of the best horror movies, I think. Uh, it's one of the, it's early talky. So it's, the effects are really not great, but they, they solve that by making, by just not showing him, you know, so that's what they do. Uh, but in this one, you never, it's from the opposite perspective. So Elizabeth Moss plays a woman whose husband invents invisibility and then tortures her and she escapes from him. And then the whole movie's about him trying to torture her. So it's about the abuse of women, women and invisibility as a tool in that abuse. And then she, and of course, you might imagine she ends up turning the tables on him. And, uh, and she's so yeah. good. She's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's I always think, good in everything. I know. I, 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 you know, obviously, like most people, I first saw her in Mad Men, which I think was just she was really her and Draper. Their relationship made that series to me. And then, you know, and then other like Handmaid's Tale and this other stuff she's in. Yeah, we're watching Handmaid's Tale right now because st- it came out in 2016 and I was right. trying to watch it then and it was like too real. So now now I'm like, okay, let's watch it. <laughs> now I think I can maybe handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. finished the first season. I actually first saw her in a play on Broadway. Um, she was in this play called Speed the Plow with uh, Jeremy Piven. David Mamet play. Yeah, it was really, really good. And it was like she was on stage like the entire 90 minutes. um, And she was just amazing. But I I didn't know who she was at the time. And then when I saw her Mad Men, I was like, oh, that's the woman I saw in this play. I know. I think she's really good, except, you know, she's she's like Tom Cruise. She's a Ron Hubbard thing. What's it called? The S word. Yes. Scientology. Yeah, yeah. So is Beck, and I really like Beck's music. His his second to last album was so good. Yeah, I think this is like separating the artist from the art, right? You just, you kind of have to do it. But you can't. They are all of these things. I know, but you can, but you don't think that the artwork has a little independence? It's probably the best part of them. I like that way of thinking, but you don't. You don't think that when you that because of the formal demands of art that it 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 comes something comes out that's that's that sort of violates who you are and oh and, for sure and yeah. it's more like your unconscious coming through instead of this ego thing you've created yeah I think that's right so it's maybe more accurate of their subjectivity yeah yeah but you don't so do you not do you intentionally not watch or read things by people that you know are detestable? No. You don't care. You just I don't think anything should be censored. Yeah, but I I don't think so either, but you can censor your I mean you like you could prohibit yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I don't do that. You don't do that. Yeah. No. If I if there's something detestable like in their work and it's turning me off, like like say classic Woody Allen, for example. <laughs> right, right. Early Woody Allen, love. But like yeah. recent, like the um Wonder Wheel, I love the Coney Island thing. I love seeing Coney Island, like, in the olden days. But, like, it's just, like, him, like, spitting his whole pathology at us. Like, I am this young, like, he's Justin Timberlake and, like, should be with uh, Kate Winslet, but then goes for the stepdaughter. And it's just, like, ew, I cannot. Like, please, yeah. please stop. Yeah, I think... So I can't watch him anymore. Yeah, I th- so because the pathology is too evident in the work. Yeah, exactly. And that's disgusting. But- I, I agree with that, but you don't, I mean, I don't think he's made a good film since the early nineties, actually. Yeah, I would agree with that. I kept watching and watching and watching, waiting Tr- to have, hoping, a, yeah. <laughs> I want to return to like crimes and misdemeanors, which I think still is just really great. And I think even something like Manhattan murder mystery. Yeah, is we rewatched really, that recently. Manhattan murder mystery was so good. And that's that like really neurotic, but in a different way, like in the good New York neurotic way. Right, right, right. I think that has to be one of the like five funniest films ever made. You know, it's really, and it it manages to integrate Lady from Shanghai, this great scene from Lady from Shanghai, and it manages to 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 have a nice little murder mystery going on, and then it's incredibly comic at the same time. So it's and and also like be the it's almost the story of the. I don't know. Is it the destruction of his marriage, or at least the, the 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 ripping apart of it, and then the coming together of it? Right. So all that stuff is wrapped into one. It's pretty, it's pretty great. But nothing in everything that I think that was the last one where he was really like hit it, and then the rest just kind of maybe because he indulged in the thing he should not have, and then it yeah, ruined his art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's he he like he got his fantasy object. Yeah, you're not supposed to. You're not yeah. supposed to get your fantasy object. Yeah, yeah, I know. Don't touch I it or her. <laughs> I think that has to be right because that's the film that he was making when he, you know, Mia Farrow started out in that film. Oh, really? They, yeah, yeah. So the Diane, Ke- Diane Keaton just came mid-shooting and replaced Mia Farrow because they had this, you know, terrible breakup. And so that's the last film where he was really not, he was sort of entering into that territory where he had his fantasy object. And, and then after that, it's just a total collapse. I think you're right. Like, I think there's really something about the artist and the, and the alienation from what, I mean, that's true for everyone, right? Like no one should have their fantasy object, but it's especially true. I think for the artist when they, I mean, obviously, they, they believe they've realized their fantasy. They haven't, of course. But, but the fact that he believes it, I think, has been very detrimental to his, his art. Yeah, he should have just stayed in the suffering of his neurosis. Yeah, yeah. And we would have all had much better film experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I know, which is what's important. If, if he really – no, I mean, it's really true. It's probably better true per- – it's probably true even personally. Right. Like, I think life with believing that you've achieved your fantasy is is pretty horrible. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. What do you yeah. do then? I know you just sit around just and go put it on everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you you just you try. Well, I wonder, do you have a theory about why that makes the art bad? 
do I have a theory about why it makes the art bad? I don't know, it just does. <laughs> you need your symptom to be able to make your work. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I, I mean, that's why I asked, because I, I, nothing, I mean, I, I like that idea, you need your symptom. I, I, I mean, and that you're producing the art out of your own trauma, right? Like art has this intricate relation to trauma. It, and if you, <laughs> it reminded me of like the American problem that we talked about in the beginning where you're like over asserting yourself. It's like maybe because he thinks he has the fantasy object and he's achieved it, but he really doesn't, that he has to like over assert himself over and over and over and over again and like make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> I think that's a good theory, actually. I think that's right that you that the overcompensation enters into the art. And, and I mean, art has to emanate out of something that you're lacking. And if you feel like you're not lacking anymore, then you're going to not, then you're going to just, you're right. All you can, all you can do is like shove your thing on everybody else, which is what happens. I think that's, it's interesting that you said, I feel yucky or something. I mean, I think that's, that's what you're, that's, that's what we're responding to in the later Woody Allen films. Yeah, it's great. I actually saw the Wonder Wheel in the theater and it was only because I was in Florida with my mom and like, what do I do with my mom? I take her to the movies and right. like there was nothing else. It was like summer superhero. I was like, take her to see this Woody Allen. And like, I was like squirming. I was like, please get me out of this theater. It's like, it was so beautifully shot with like the Coney Island scene, but like yeah. the story was just like so gross. I just wanted to run. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, get, yeah, I mean, get I me out of this. Still he still has the ability to shoot like there's still some nice looking shots and, and occasional scenes that are really good but it's all it's the narrative that now yeah there's is, the narrative sucked yeah it was yeah. good because kate winslet is good justin timberlake's a good actor and like it was a good it was a good yeah well shot scene scenery he does it like in these like one two takes so you, people aren't like overacting and i appreciate yeah. all of that but yeah there's no story there's no story left maybe that's also why cause he's not like he's just has it now he's not like searching for anything or like moving towards anything right i think that's like is it narrative driven by the lack of the object right like so if you already feel like you have it then you can't even construct a narrative i think yeah, and he doesn't. He just like retold his told his gross story again, and it's like, hey, we know, <laughs> we know. know, and nothing could be done about it because it's not technically illegal or whatever. So everyone just has, has to accept this. This is what you do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's. I mean, it's an interesting case study in an artist's total disintegration as an artist, right? Like, I mean, it's almost I'm trying to think, can you think of another, a, an equal to that? Like someone else who, I, I mean, maybe, I guess the American example would be Faulkner, right? Like maybe someone at this incredible high level. And then they're, they just the fall off, just like fall off a cliff. I think, or maybe Hemingway. Maybe Ezra Pound. Maybe Pound, right? Maybe there's too many. Maybe there's a lot of Maybe examples. there's a lot. And I think also I feel like every musician that I really, really like and then they, like, make it, like, really big time and then it's just, like, not really good anymore. It's like they're not, like, driven towards anything. They just, like, have money. They just have everything and they're just making it because they have a contract or whatever. Right. It's not like right. there's I feel like more, like, ambition in it. 
Right. So it's best if success comes very late at the end of your life. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe maybe not for them. <laughs> right. I think you're right. Like personally, I think it's worse. But, you know, like Manuel Kant wrote the first critique when he was almost 60 years old. So that was his first real success. Wow. And I've always thought that's pretty good. Like then you don't have to worry. You don't have your whole life of being this famous guy. You know, like Orson Welles was famous since he was – 19 years old, you know, and that, that was just, it was like this burden that he carried along with him all the time. And he's an, he's an interesting case because he didn't, his falling off has nothing I think to do with himself. It just has to do with the fact that other people refused, like they punished him for the greatness of his early art. Hollywood did. I think, I mean, it's about like envy, right? I think that's right. I think it's right. I think it's the envy and also the fear because I feel like his – like Citizen Kane is a real like dagger against American society and American capitalism. And and I feel like that – they're like, wait a minute. We can't let this guy have any more money or else he's going to keep making films like this. Um, you know, and, and his second one, Magnificent Ambersons, 45 minutes of it was just destroyed by the studio executive. So – that could be – and now it's not a great film because it end, the ending is terrible. Uh, but it's just because there is no ending and it was just made up. Wells was – Wells Roosevelt asked Wells to go to South America to shoot – to help relations with uh, South American countries in the U.S. And he went. And then the RKO who had the, who had the film, they, they the studio executive said just cut 40 minutes off of it. They just cut it. And then they released it, and Wells had no control, even though he was supposedly had final cut of it. And that was just the first one. And then there are subsequent times where they, you know, he had a certain vision, and they're like, "We don't want it. We don't want that." So, so it seems like you're always going to follow one of these paths. Like it's either a Woody Allen path or the Orson Welles one. It seems hard to sustain a long career of of great art. The business of Hollywood and their censorship makes me so sad sometimes when I think about it, like how many amazing films should exist that don't. Yeah, that's a great point. It's just really sad. I mean, uh, you know, it takes a, it's a very rare filmmaker that can navigate that system and still come out with something that they want to do, I think. Yeah, I bet. Did you see this last Orson Welles that they put on Netflix with the, the other side of the wind? And yeah, I forget yeah. what the other part of it was called, but they made like the final movie and then the documentary about making the final movie. Yeah. Did you watch it? Yeah. What did you yeah. think? Uh, I think that whoever put that film together should never be allowed to put another film together. <laughs> I, I thought it was just. I, I, I refuse to think that that film's associated with Orson Welles because I, I, I if I, I don't have many heroes, but like Orson Welles is one of my heroes. And I just can't I can't abide that that was something he would have ever done. So that's I'm sorry. Did, I hope you didn't really love it. No, okay. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. OK, it was interesting. The guy, you know, who put it together is Peter Bogdanovich, who did. um uh, Big, what is it, Last Picture Show? That 70s film? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I thought it was interesting that they tried to put it together, but I don't think that's what it would have been like if he put it together. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it just didn't hold. Like, his films always hold together. 
I think, even when they've been cut up by the studio. And that film didn't hold together in any way. Like, it wasn't clear what it was. Like, I'm not sure what it was trying to even say. Yeah. Which is maybe why he didn't finish it. You know, maybe he started to make it and just was like, look, I, I lost the thread of what I was trying to do. And so I can't put it together. Yeah, maybe sometimes you should just leave things alone. Yeah, even though you shoot all that. I mean, with film, it's so sad because you shoot all that footage, you've used all that money, and, and just sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't work, I think. So maybe that's why they made the making of it, to try to explain it. Right, right. I thought that was really interesting. I thought the documentary was really, really good. I mean, I almost can watch anything about him, and I just think it's great. Like just a little inner, like there's these, all these interviews with him and Dick Cabot that are on YouTube and they're just phenomenal. Like he tells all these little stories about one time he met Churchill, one time he was seated at a, at a dinner. He's a little boy, you know, he went into Europe when he was just, he was a young kid. And one time he was traveling through Europe and he got seated at a dinner next to Hitler. Wow. So it's just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Like Hitler and Wells were sitting. It's a, it's all this kind of like, and there are, there are tons of stories like this that he tells. And they're all, he's just such a great storyteller, too. Yeah, he's amazing. He can't be topped. Yeah, I agree. You know, Marlena Dietrich has my favorite line ever about someone. She says, do you know this line she says about him? Okay, she says, she says when I see him and talk to him, I feel like a plant that has been watered. Oh. And I just, I thought that was just the greatest, nicest thing you could say about someone. That's really true. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that when I watch his films, we're holding out our, my, our sons haven't yet seen Citizen Kane. So we're waiting for exactly the right age when they'll be like, the problem is we've built it up. So you know how, when you have a film build up to you, it's always disappointing because it can never be as good. That one can't disappoint though. I guess you're right. You're right. <laughs> they already know it's a sled. So I <laughs> So it's not suspenseful for them. But that I don't think that that's a film where knowing that doesn't hurt anything. No, it's the experience of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that it goes that it circles around. It's just like what we're talking about, like it circles around on a subject and then it doesn't get the object, which which is what that's I mean, what that, it's good. That's when it's good. You're not yeah. supposed to get the object. <laughs> I, know, I know. I agree totally. Yeah. Yeah. We should make sure we talk about your new book. Okay. <laughs> Universality so, and identity politics. Yeah, yeah. So that's it'll be out in July. So it's the, basically the idea is so it's two two. It's a basic. It's a defense of universality in a world of identity politics. So that's the one thing. And it it. So I think the old, the main thing that's that's original about it is that if I can say that about my own book, uh, is that it, it, it um, thinks of the divide between right and left as the divide between particular particularity and universality. And so I, I look at the way that happens, especially through Nazism and the way Nazism was totally allergic to any universality. And this is, it's pretty fascinating when you like, I read through like Mein Kampf and all this, what others, other main Nazis wrote. And, and I found that pretty fascinating. And then, I try to theorize universality as located through absence rather like through what's missing. And that's the thing that bonds us together through what we, the shared thing that we don't have. And so it's tied to what we've been talking about the whole time. But I see that as the basis for universality and thus 
I think it's a way of obviating some of these critiques of the universal that have been leveled by so many theorists of the 20th century. You know, Foucault, Deleuze, Derrida, they're all kind of, Foucault mainly more than the others, is very critical of universality. And I think that idea seeped into the popular, at least popular academic world and and I think maybe popular world as well. And so part of what I'm trying to do is rehabilitate universality by grounding it in what we don't have rather than what we have. Nice. I have been so, looking forward to this book since the last time we talked. I know. I, I, I've been, it's been, it's been rested. It's taken a while for it to come through the, the problem is that I, 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 I had it finished and then I, um, I didn't know what to do because my book on Hegel wasn't even out yet. And I'm like, can I talk to my editor at Columbia and say, Hey, do you want to look at another book? I haven't even, my other one's not even out yet. Do you want to? And so I'm like, I shouldn't do it. So I waited till the Hegel book came out. And then I said to her, I'm sure you don't want to do it. And then she's like, no, no, send it to me. Of we'll course do they it. want to do it. <laughs> so that was I know she, she, she was very nice. She said, anything you write, we'll, we'll look at. So that was nice. But I, I think I'm pushing it again because I already finished another one. And my, <laughs> that one isn't out yet. So I'm going to hold, I'm going to try to hold back on this. It's very hard for me. What is the new, new one about? Uh, this one's called The Racist Fantasy. So it tries to theorize racism as a product not of power, but of fantasy and the enjoyment that fantasy brings. So, you know, I think it's a, from a psychoanalytic standpoint, I think it may seem obvious, but it's, uh, I don't know. So I, and I traced that through different things and how that fantasy works out and how we can, might combat it, that kind of thing. I don't think that anything that you've written I would ever describe as obvious. That's very nice to us. <laughs> it's very true. I think you write very clearly about really complicated things and make them seem like, oh, yeah, of course. But that doesn't mean it was obvious. Well, that's very nice. Uh, I don't know. I'm afraid it's obvious. I'm afraid. Maybe I haven't been obvious up till now. Just getting ready for this one really obvious uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just, maybe not. I mean, and, you know, I worry. I don't know. I'm not worried about it. I'm happy about it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in some kind of, thank you for saying that. That was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to suffer <laughs> is your I, I know I, I am suffering. <laughs> I, I'm suffering from I, I, I suffer every compliment I think be very I don't know it's tied to what I was you know like I grew up like you I grew up with this very religious background and so I don't know self-flagellation is much more comfortable for me than having to endure someone saying some kind of compliment so yes I understand that <laughs> I think it's tied to that religious. I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just I think a, so. You think it is? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah, I'm sure it is. I think that's but, the problem I, with, I, I yeah, can uh, only speak to Christianity, but I think that's the problem with Christian, Christian fundamentalism is that it takes something that people so commonly do to themselves anyway, and then it, like, uses that to manipulate people. So it, like, makes it even more severe than you would have been kind of if you were just regularly neurotic. I think that's right. Do you think what, it, what do you think it's super egoic? Yeah, for sure. You do. Okay. Cuz it so and you think that is do you think that Judaism is less super egoic than Christianity because the law is external? 
I guess so. I don't know. Like I said, I feel like I can't speak to anything else. Because the only thing I really know is is this uh, Christian fundamentalism. And I went to Episcopalian school, which was not that fundamental. They right. don't, like We take the Eucharist, but you don't like have to go to confession, for example. Right. Um, but my mom is from Alabama. And so her right. family is like really Christian. Right. <laughs> and so they like they like talk in tongues and like at dinner just talk about Jesus the whole time and how he saved you and how you should be thankful for like 45 minutes and it's like do you have anything else to say ever? <laughs> and they don't. That's, that's a sad that's a that's a that's a sad dinner, I think. <laughs> yeah, for like my entire life it's like do you have anything to say that is your own thought, you know? There's no yeah. own thoughts. It's just all like this regurgitated spiel about jesus saving us and we're all so lucky yeah that's tough that's tough to it is sad yeah yeah i mean that it's so funny how that has gotten the the, the, that's gotten so politically mobilized in america you know And, and, and i don't know when i grew up i don't feel like it had that same kind of that same kind of political valence to it you know like i I mean, my parents were conservative politically, but they, it wasn't this, there wasn't a tie between the religious belief and the political conviction. If anything, I think my, my dad felt like his religion was pushing him to the left and he was going to try to, you know, because he, he, he believed in the American ideal that he was going to keep himself on the right. But he felt because of, you know, like compassion for the other or whatever like that 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 was pushing him in a leftward direction but i i think that's not at all true anymore like that 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 evangelical christianity is so tied up with this and with this political conservatism but i don't understand i mean the notion of the relation love for the other it's so disappeared from that whole that whole equation right i mean that's what that's the to me the saddest thing in this last 50 years of American Christianity. Totally. I mean, if Jesus existed, that's this is definitely not what he had in mind. I can say that. Right, right, right. Well, no, it's For sure. Yeah. But I think, I think the, their only real, like, entryway is through the, the pro-choice pro uh, or pro-life or whatever they call it. So I think that's the only thing. They get everybody based on that, on abortion. You know, it's like can't do that and then that's it they just don't lose anything else they've just like hooked onto that one thing right right so if you if you buy that then you then nothing else i mean you love the unborn everything else doesn't have to be loved right apparently i I mean it's amazing you gotta have babies so that you can send them to war (laughs) well that's the question like how can war be from that perspective be justified how can the attitude toward the immigrant of try, I mean that that it just seems like such a betrayal of the Christian idea. I mean, this is part of my book on Hegel. I do a long thing about Hegel's Christianity, and I feel like, and that kind of reconciled me to Christianity. I was, I was writing that book that I felt like hey, I kind of am Christian actually. Uh, and that my boys got so upset with me because they're like, "You don't mean by that what anybody else means by that." So you have to stop saying that. And I'm like, "Well, okay, um, but but don't you feel like?" that there's this, there's a real emancipatory kernel in the Christian idea. And it's just so betrayed by all of its manifestations. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 
I had to wrestle with that when I was younger for a long time because I felt like, well, even if everybody else is not doing this the way I think it should be done, like this like nice helping people care for the other way and they're all being like really bigoted then like that made me for a while feel like I had to like really hold on to it because like somebody has to be like a good Christian you know yeah yeah but then you gave that up yeah I had to because it's just too far gone (laughs) that's probably true it's probably too much the territory is probably too much lost right like it's it's the group it's the problem with groups big groups Little groups, groups are problem. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you want the group to all think the same. It's a problem. Yeah. Well, that's almost inherent in a group, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, I think it's hard to have a group where you prize those who go their own way, right? Like, what would that, what would that even look like? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It would look like Embahagen, which is like, there you does go. it exist? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes <Yeah>. it does. <laughs> well, isn't that Sometimes true? It doesn't. Of all... <laughs> Don't you think, Vanessa, it's true of like it's why all these psychoanalytic groups all disband all the time? Because you know, like they're committed to that idea of of, of the antagonism that the individual can go their own way and then then there's no group cohesion or whatever cohesion they have is all it's a very contingent. Exactly, and that's why that's why things, ha- when they get too solidified, they're not really psychoanalytic anymore. They just like get too dogmatic. Right, right. So, the, so there's something about the psychoanalytic project that's anti-organization, anti-group. I think so. Yeah. I think yeah. it's. I think being too dogmatic or hierarchical is antithetical to psycho psychoanalytic practice. If psychoanalysis is doing its job. No, I agree. Just because if the big other doesn't exist, then there can't be a hierarchy. Like no hierarchy can be invalidated or justified. Right. And if, but the problem is, of course, if you don't have a hierarchy, then every – the stupidest comments can, can win the day. You know, like they can – so there is a kind of contradiction or a, like a tension, I think. Yeah. But I think people, somebody, who was it? It was actually Billy Corgan <laughs> of the Smashing Pumpkins. He actually saw a talk that I gave with a friend of mine, Caitlin Foisy, and we were talking about the cut-ups, the cut-up method, and, like, having to break down narratives, and, the, like, yeah. there's too many rigid narratives and that sort of thing. And he said, but you can't just, like, break it down all the time. Like, you have to, like, reorganize, reorganize. And I said, but people do that. People are going to do that. You know, people are always making order and always making sense of things. So you don't really need to encourage people, I feel like, to do that because I think we just all do that, at least neurotic people. You know, we're like constantly making things into these orders. So I think more we need to get out of these kinds of rigid structures and narratives rather than get into them because we're going to get into them anyway. Right. But can you imagine a structure that's um, not rigid that's not um that like that takes into account the non-existence of the big other like that 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 doesn't try to create a big other that try that as all you know what i'm saying that 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 has a kind of that 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 wrestles with or reconcile is reconciled to its own contradiction can you imagine a structure that does that 
In what form? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just think I, I don't have an example. I just think like that would be the idea of like what the structure would have to be like, you know, that it would have to be this one, which the, you know, the, the, the people that are excluded or the people that don't belong have almost more status than the people that are belong, you know, so that, 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 that in some way the structure uh, is reconciled to what it can't do, that it, 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 it accepts its own failure in a way. And I think that would have to be the only, that would be the way that you would have to think of it. But I, I, I do feel the necessity of that because I think, you know, like just while you were talking about the state earlier, like I think if you don't have that, like today the absence of structure means the victory of capital. Right. You know, like, like capital is all, it, it, it capitalizes on structures breaking down, right? So I do feel like you have to erect something as a, as a barrier to, capital's dominance. That's very true. And something I have learned also from moving to Sweden is that I now understand what a government is supposed to do. <laughs> right, right. Which I literally didn't even really understand what governments were supposed to do before because the government in America is just so messed up. Um, but now I understand it's like it like this idea of like freedom in America is like it means that there's no one to protect you. Like, so like corporations or people that are just like fraudulent just have like free reign because there's no right. like protections in place. And now I understand from Sweden, it's like, like say like, for example, the food industry, like if you put a bunch of chemicals in your food that are known to cause cancer, like all these colorings and chemicals and stuff that you right. put in food in the States, it's like, you don't get to call that food and like sell it to people. Yeah, so it's like that's yeah. not food anymore. So it's like the government here like monitors like companies that would try to do something like that to make extra money or like cut costs and they say like we're not going to sell that here. Like now you have no market. So right. in order to be able to sell your things or like have your products, you you have to have certain regulations in place. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great point that the Part of what's happened in America is this destruction of the state apparatus by by the interests of big capital, right? I think that's and, and so it, that's great that you've been able to experience the contrast, you know? Because yeah, I think I when you live here, you live here, you just think it's impossible, like it can never happen, like there's just no possibility for that. Yeah, I did. I thought all governments were corrupt, basically. Right. <laughs> Basically, that's what I judged. That that was like the nature of government is that it's corrupt in some way. And I understand like there there's actually at least a couple few over here that are like really trying not to do that. <laughs> they right. really really work not to do that. And they they're really like Steve Advisor gave a talk once uh, when when um, Trump first got in office called Crazy Like a Fox, and he pointed out like the things that should not be big businesses like healthcare, education military and like policing you know these things shouldn't be like incarceration that shouldn't be a business right like you put right. somebody in jail because they're dangerous or like they're gonna hurt somebody or hurt some or hurt themselves or something like that but like you're not supposed to make money off of it right <laughs> absolutely right the obscenity of that is just incredible i think it really is it's yeah. it's absurd and preposterous and it's been like this for a very long time i know I guess my one of my hopes from this corona outbreak was that 
there'd be a return of shame about some of some of the terrible obscenities of the of especially of great wealth in the U.S. You know, like that, I forget what his name, David Geffen, I think, um, went out on his yacht right as the virus started to break out and put a thing on Instagram. I'm keeping safe on my yacht. Hopefully everyone else is keeping safe, too. And he had to shut down his Instagram account because it got so much critique for this wealthy guy on a yacht saying that. And I, and it's because people felt the shame that he didn't feel. Right. And so I feel like that made me hopeful. And I, 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 you know, and I think there's a way in which we see all the things that people don't need. I mean, people are able to, sort, I mean, a lot of people don't have enough to eat and that's during the virus that's become exacerbated, but the other people that are in the, in, in, in Western world where they're, they have enough, I think the idea of enough, we see how much enough is, and it's not all this other that people have thought that what they needed. And I think that this difference between like accumulate endlessly and I have enough, I kind of like that idea of like, we have enough, we don't need any, we don't need any more. Yeah. And I think if you have a government in place, that's like being a good dad you know? <laughs> and actually like giving yeah. some sort of a modicum of protection to make sure you're not like being abused or like taken advantage of by like any kind of corporate entity or anyone that can get a hold of you then uh and then you have education for free or like here in Sweden uh even if you want to go to like Waldorf schooling or something like that that's like typically private in the states it's all covered here like even specialty wow. schools like that are covered yeah. It's amazing. So it's like people yeah. know their health care is taken care of, and then they're all reasonably educated because they're all getting free education. It, you know, then they can pretty much take care of themselves unless, like, there's an accident or something. And then if there is, then, then they get some sort of assistance to help, you know, with that. But, like, right. you have a lot less problems when people have the basic health care and basic education. Right. No, I know. Fancy I that. Know. Surprise. Yeah. And the other yeah. thing they do is pay taxes. That's the saddest thing about America is, like, everyone thinks, like, oh, but in Sweden you have to pay so many taxes. It's 30%. It's 30%. You know? that's I, I paid more than that, actually, in New York. So it's, like, right. it's 30%. And if all these huge corporations in America paid their 30% share, imagine how nice their roads would be. Everybody <laughs> could have health care. It'd be right. really nice, and it right. wouldn't hurt them to pay thirty percent. Right. No, it's true. I think you're right. Like the, the 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 way that taxes are avoided by the people that have the most is just. I mean, that's just sickening, right? And the, and also the way, starting with Reagan, the way their rates were all brought down. So this has all happened in a very systematic way. You know? Do you know this book by Thomas Piketty? The the he wrote just a new book called I think it's called Capitalism and Ideology. It was published in France in like I think end of the last year, and now it's I just got translated into English, and and it's pretty good on the on the way in which uh, the combination. His idea is that it's two things: it's Reagan and Thatcher, the way they demonize the state, and then and I think this is absolutely right. His point is that the the, the end of the Soviet Union opened up. Like it made this one option, it just took it off the table. And so even though it wasn't a genuine option, it just made it, it made it seem like capitalism was the only game in town. And so that just, that brought all these taxes came down and then there was just all this unrestrained accumulation by these, by the, by the wealthy. And so he, he links those two events 
together, I think rightfully so, to say that's really the disaster, those two things coming together. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Professor Todd McGowan. For more, please visit vermont.academia.edu forward slash Todd McGowan. That's T-O-D-D-M-C-G-O-W-A-N. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash vanessa 23 Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, Consuming Six from the album Sound 23 by myself and Douglas Lucas, available from chapart.net. Varying from person to person, but attempted to stave off the fragmentation, that to situation, or even from day to day, if one human being stated, she language and its patterns produced in thee went beyond the superficial. They concerned the classification. Viewers were outraged as they had never seen, consequently, the role played by art and how to relate to it. It was called un-American and values, and although the army show included The most well-known of the images were to be static and fixed. Jacques Villon Duchamp recollects that I always gave salon of independence like an invisible color. Life that he had been working on in his final himself simply tried to be did and disrupt till the end. The was freedom, complete personal, and in which he achieved all three was the stimulus. In 1911, we an enduring work of art, public domain, 
without the participation of its sometime in 1913. Duchamp fashioned the final, completely aloof from the newly formed cubist. Duchamp, completely by chance, as he had deep idealist goals, held no interest for them at all. Clearly, our mutt. Yet, shortly before the opening of the society time, Duchamp later reflects that the theory of fountain, apparently the society of independent approach, however, he wanted to invent or film of art as one would have liked to believe. Once this interpreter of the theory from his position as director.